Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by writer Ocean Vuong. Two years ago, Ocean published his book, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. It's now being released on paperback through Penguin Books. Written as a letter from a Vietnamese-American to his illiterate mother, Ocean describes the piece as an autobiographical novel, which is to say, a book born out of family and fiction, history, and imagination. The protagonist, named Little Dog, reveals through letters a family history rooted in Vietnam. Ocean himself was born in Saigon and moved to the United States at the age of two. His mother was the daughter of an American soldier who fell in love with a Vietnamese girl during the war. In the book, Ocean writes, Sometimes I imagine the monarchs fleeing not winter, but the napalm clouds of your childhood in Vietnam. As you can see, the line between autobiography and fiction is blurred. But it's also, I think, not entirely important to make these distinctions. What's real is that Ocean grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, where, as he writes, 
he grew up reckoning with the colonial past, someone who thought of America as a policy of violence, a pattern of death. And so, in this talk, we try to wrestle with all that this book encompasses, the cage of white male privilege, the horrific violence of this past year, the racial reckoning happening around the world. As some of you may know, Ocean speaks as he writes. A single sentence often contains three or four ideas, all of which worthy of discussion. And yet, along with the thoughtfulness you may expect, what you're about to hear is someone truly processing this moment in American life, processing our collective uncertainty and hopefulness, processing the pain of March 16th in Atlanta, the grief around losing his mother in November of 2019, the joy and beauty of this book, and the long, winding journey that brought it and him here. Ocean, how are you in this moment? I'm well enough. The past year has taught us that well enough is a pretty big privilege. I think, you know, being well enough seems like a, a goal. It was a goal for a lot of my pandemic, and I'm finally here. And, you know, my Buddhist training tells me that well enough will go away soon. <laughs> I hope I'm prepared when that happens. On the subject of change, your book came out just about two years ago, and is now being re-released. And, and I wondered, where does this piece land inside of you now? That's a good question. I think I've luckily have a lot of experience with this as a poet, because you're always, you know, you're publishing poems. And so the pieces always come delayed. They always are, live in the world much later than when you've made them. And sometimes they feel absolutely estranged. The self that's, that reckons with the work is absolutely estranged from the self that made the work. Um, and so I've, I've, at this point, I've gotten used to being kind of detached from the work. You know, metaphors are tricky, but I think the metaphor I would use is, is making a book is kind of like building a raft on the shore. And then you kind of set the raft downriver. And however the world engages with that little raft is, is up to the world's agency. It's no longer, I have no say in it. And in fact, I have to stay on the shore to make anything else. You know, I can't stay on that raft because I would have to dismantle it to make anything else. I just, I think it's already far downriver and I'm just kind of still on the shores speaking from what I know. But I think maybe there's now more knowledge about, about it that, than I could ever add to. And yet, so much of this book is interwoven in, into the fabric of your life. And I wonder, how does one get distance from that? Is such a distance even possible? I think it's a trick. It's a trick every writer kind of knows, you know, how to manage. You're smiling now about this. Yeah, to a certain degree, you know, it's a, it's a trick. Um, I wanted to write an autobiographical novel because I wanted the stakes to be high enough to charge the imagination. You know, the people have to feel close to me so that I can see them better. But I did not want to kind of remake or reproduce the people I know. 
And so, in this sense, it was never going to be a memoir. I could never write a memoir. I think ultimately, I'm too cowardly to write a good memoir. I think a good memoir requires research, interviews, and questioning those involved. And I think when I try to do that, if only for myself, when I asked you know, my mother when she was alive, when I asked my family, I, I couldn't bear it. Who was I to kind of demand that they rehash wounds so I can play anthropologist? And so I knew that if this book resembled so much like my life, that it became indistinguishable to me, then I would never publish it. I see this novel as more of a simulation, a creation of a parallel universe in which the characters are based in a contextual schema, but they are animated completely by the imagination. In other words, the most excited thing I've ever done in a barn was eat a sandwich. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You mentioned that scene and, and rereading it today as you have two young men finding themselves a Patriots football game playing in the background. The specificity is so present that I read that and thought, well, that must have been a scene from Ocean's Life. You know, you take the detritus of the world and you recalibrate it. You know, in a way, every writer is building uh, his own Frankenstein's monster. It's interesting. I, I, was in a, I was on tour. One woman asked me, this had to be a memoir because why else would you uh, have Jolly Ranchers in it? And I thought it was so interesting, you know. And I just felt, well, you know, there's a, a degree of verisimilitude that the artifacts of the, of the world amplify in a literary text. And I think ultimately it's a literary device. How much do we embellish the sort of holograms of a lived life in order to raise the stakes so that the reader doesn't feel that they are being forced into a feeling? And this is why I always felt that a novel or a poem even is really like a, a town square. It's, you're making a piazza. You don't force people how to feel. You create a space in which they can feel in, and you certainly decorate that space. And so whether it's Patriots or Jolly Ranchers, um, I've certainly consumed those things, but in the calibration that they exist in the literary text, it's the work of the imagination. You said the thesis of this book is that we are actually trapped in these larger systems, even as we animate and move about them. The conditions of our lives are predetermined in some ways. How do you, Ocean, combat that feeling of being trapped? You said, I wanted to write about American failure, because when we think of the tragedy, we think of it in relation to the queer body. The queer body fails, and therefore, it's tragic. But what I want to reframe, perhaps, is that American masculinity is a failure in itself in which no one thrives, including the characters of this book. Mm. With this quote, this idea, do you think the book, given the last two years we've had, that it is especially about the failures of American masculinity? I think so. The book is also the sum total of decades of seeing the myriad versions of that failure and how, particularly in a working class New England milieu, you know, how a preordained version of masculinity is actually so narrow that no one truly fits in it and thrives. It becomes a cartoonish demand. And any person 
male or female, because masculinity, of course, is a performance, that enters that uh, sort of um, factory, if you will, rarely comes out with all of themselves intact. And I think that is the demand, the brutal demand of, of the American social standard, is that if you want to fit in, quote-unquote, if you want to assimilate, what will you lose? What will you be prepared to lose? And I'm interested in the novel because it sets up characters in ways that they can answer that question, but not always in ways that they can choose. Sometimes they have to accept certain versions of that answer. And this is why I enter a novel with as much curiosity, I think, as a reader. I don't know. I don't know how, how these characters will do. But I'm interested in launching this simulation and seeing where they end up. You mentioned a factory, and as we're talking about American violence, there was this cult gun factory in Hartford that, as a child, you would often find yourself in these abandoned warehouses where you would play and explore. And I wondered how that experience informed some of your thinking around American masculinity. The cult gun factory kind of haunts Hartford, and it literally does, because it's the, probably the most beautiful building. And this is something people don't know. It's incredibly embellished. It has this Turkish-style dome. You would think it was a place where people worship and heal. You would never imagine that this is an armory that actually sold weaponry to both sides during the Civil War. Talk about capitalism, right? I mean, the opportunist, you know, Samuel Colt, saw the country falling apart as a way to, to make a fortune, and he did. I think a lot of kids and my friends were attracted to the building because of its strange beauty. It looked like something out of the Wizard of Oz, out of Disneyland, you know, and... And when inside, we just saw that it was, it was an absolute graffiti-ridden shell. That illusion, I think, was, you know, you don't think critically at it as an eight-year-old, but it absorbs through you, through osmosis, that, you know, America is about mirages. <laughs> a, a place that was once literally a machine of death could be alluring enough to venture into, to amplify a child's imagination. I get the sense, based on what I understand of you, that you are more keenly aware of the depths of this mirage than most people are. I don't know if I know more than others, but I think the education of a writer like myself who has to reckon with a colonial past and a geopolitical rift brings me to know America as a policy of violence. Any person enters the world as an adult with an aim, at best, for self-knowledge. And I think because of the context of my life and, you know, the war in Vietnam that I came out of, that quest of self-knowledge led me to learn about American foreign policy and American you know, domestic policy, to learn about the civil rights, which was happening at the same time, JFK, Agent Orange, Monsanto, you know, and all of us, you know, and then from there you go to Halle Burton, you know, and 9-11 and Iraq. And so you start to see patterns. And America, quite frankly, is a pattern of death. Right away, out of the gate, our identity as a country was founded on genocide and slavery. And so much of the cultural force is uneasy with that. The John Waynes, the Clint Eastwoods, it's this idea that the West was just a blank piece of paper that there was nothing here, and that any settlement 
any development on it would be a benefit to the land. And that myth is so powerful because it necessitates the future. America needed that myth, that this benevolent productivity, in order to arrive where it arrives now, because it's so afraid of truly looking back at the bloody hands. And I think our turning away, we can see that in so many amplifications, but in the most microscopic one, I would say in the word, for example, no homo, which is something that, you know, so many children um, growing up in the, the late 90s and early aughts, you know, would hear. You think about it, like, we might be the only country that needed a magic spell, because that's what it was, for boys to touch each other. And when you think of all the progress, the advances in medicine, science, and weaponry that we've developed, and you say, on one hand, you have all that. On another hand, you needed a magic spell to do this very basic human thing. You realize, oh, when it comes to masculinity, when it comes to the emotional permission, the capacity, we're actually quite primitive. And we're hurting from it. And we're seeing that hurt now. On page 116, you write, In his backyard, an empty dirt field beside a freeway overpass, I watched Trevor aim his 32 Winchester at a row of paint cans lined on an old park bench. I did not know then what I know now. To be an American boy, and then an American boy with a gun, is to move from one end of a cage to another. That's a great reading, I think, because I think that, for me, might be the very thesis of the whole book, which is we are actually trapped in the larger systems, even as we animate and move about them. And maybe this is on a larger scale informed by Buddhism, which says that we are kind of set forth in these tracks of karma. You know, we have to act within them and also act against them. You know, the conditions of our lives are kind of predetermined in some way. And, and I think that's, that much is true. You know, you zoom in and you see what we call white male privilege. And it seemingly on its surface seems to have so much, possess so much. But growing up in New England, being so close to it, I saw that it was actually just another cage. But unlike the other cages, it's a cage that's barbed. It's a cage that harms those around it. Even inside it, happiness was so rare. And I think that's a question that I'm so interested in. What was considered a hierarchical peak was actually a bottom. We don't know what the hierarchical peak is because we've set up such a damaged hierarchy in this country. The pyramid on our money, it was false. How do you combat that feeling of being trapped? What does that look like? I don't know if I combat it. You know, I try not to fight the world so much as examine it. I think I'm one ant in the ant farm at the side of the child's desk. And I'm just saying, wow, it's not so big in here as we thought. <laughs> I don't know how to get out. Uh, you know, Buddhism tells us you get out through not existing and ceasing the conditions to, to create these laws of harm that kind of return to us, you know, stop accruing these debts. But I've, I'm clearly here, so I'm no sage in, in the mysteries of that. So I don't know if I live and work to seek answers as much as to understand and to seek methods of surviving within this ant farm. To stick with this imagery, 
Is it possible to exist outside of the ant farm? Yes, and I think this is where I'm actually very optimistic. I know op- optimism is not very trendy. I want to be careful not to be, not to turn my optimism into blatant naivete. But when I was growing up post 9-11 and then the recession, Iraq, then Obama's election, it was very interesting. I, I, I keep th- coming back to this moment. This is 2009, Obama's elected. I'm in a class in Brooklyn College and it's a very diverse class. And we were studying Othello and the professor, you know, with a transplant from Swarthmore. And he was very resistant to reading Othello through a racialized lens, which I thought was very absurd. And when I tried to kind of invite or provoke that conversation, this young woman turned to me, a woman of color, almost as if I was kind of ruining the party and says, we're post-racial. What are you, what are you doing? And I go back to that moment because I think everyone in that class today would never imagine the conversations we're having now. And, and quite frankly, neither did I. The 90s told us that we were post-racial. There's an economic boon. Clinton playing the saxophone dubbed him, quote-unquote, the first black president, which is another absurd thing to say. Obama was, was elected, and race was a thing of the past. We've gotten over it, quote-unquote. And from there on, everything changed towards, I think, more reckonings and more knowledge. It, it felt like the experience I had in that classroom happened 30 years ago and not 10. And that makes me very hopeful because our national lexicon has grown so much and it feels like such a wealth to have these conversations via social media, to have folks at all sorts of intersections of race, gender, and age be able to kind of grapple with this together. I've never seen it in my entire life, given I haven't lived, you know, very long, but I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. I wonder when you're in that classroom, how much you feel this one line of the book that I keep coming back to. You wrote, sometimes you are erased before you are even given a choice of starting who you are. To be or not to be, that is the question. A question, yes, but not a choice. And in that moment, as a young 20-something in college, you were not given a choice to be who you are, who you were. Yeah, yeah. I remind my students this. You know, I tell them, it's like, look, you came here to a graduate program to study how to make things, how to do things, whether it's poetry or fiction or memoir. But what you'll have to learn very quickly is that in order to make the way you want to make, you're going to have to resist a lot of dictation, decrees from systems set way before you got here. In fact, you might have to resist a lot of systems you've already internalized. Even the way we look at a workshop, essentially a factory, through materialist means. You might think that as an artist, you're definitely not on Wall Street. You have clean hands. But in fact, this idea of competition, this meritocracy is still embedded in everything that we do. It still haunts us. You have to answer the question, are you going to do this because you love it? Or are you going to do this because you want to be famous or rich or wealthy or known and and, and satisfy the ego? There's so many easy ways to satisfy those things. They're already there. If you really want to answer your questions that propelled you to this work, you have to be able to say no to very, very powerful things in order to say yes 
to yourself and your ambitions for your work. And I can't really teach you that so much as remind you every class. You gotta have to learn your nose in order to say yes to yourself. And I think that's kind of what it is, is that you might be in a classroom where you can't choose and you're gonna have to delay that freedom to when you can, if you can survive it. Many people enter those classrooms and the classroom might be a metaphor here. It could be the workforce, the office, the institution, the milieu, the genre. Many people enter those spaces, they learn the rules and then the rules crush them and either they conform or they vanish but they lose themselves. And I think art making is so valuable because we're the only species that can articulate the mental and spiritual version of a thumbprint and share it with our own species. No other species can do that. While you're teaching your students to push back against these larger capitalistic forces, you've been working in opposition to these cultural and generational forces For context, you were born in Saigon, and at age two, you come to the United States. The year is 1984. You grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and I want to refer to what you said about being first generation. You said, The great crisis of the first and second generation is that the first generation made it here, and to live it all is such a privilege that They're happy and even encourage you to put your head down. And I think the second generation, the great conundrum there, the great paradox, is that they want to be seen. They want to make something. And what a better way to make something and fill yourself with agency than to be an artist. So, so many of us immigrant children end up betraying our parents in order to subversively achieve our parents' dreams. How do you think you fit inside that thinking? Um, I fit and then I don't fit. I fit in that, you know, my family never imagined that I would end up doing what I did. And they also struggled with seeing it as success, which is actually very healthy to me. It took them a long time to really see value in what I was doing. And I think that's really fair. Why should I demand their interests when... So much of their lives were spent in factories and nail salons. You wake up at 8 in the morning, you get there at 9, and you work till 9. And if a customer comes in at 8.50, you take them, and then you're leaving at 9.30, 9.40. When can you read a book? And so I I think by being in the literary world, I've kind of ejected myself from my family's comprehension. And I think that's okay. I don't think I benefit from them seeing me as Ocean Vuong, the writer. And that's something that not a lot of writers get. They lose this idiosyncratic, familial selfhood um, when they become a public figure. Whereas my aunt visited, you know, last week, and it was like a Tuesday, and she was just spent the whole day with me cooking, and we went shopping for plants. And, and then she stopped in the middle of it at the kitchen, and she, she turns to me and said, wait a minute, what is your job? I've been here six hours. What are you? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you just get paid for, for walking around thinking. And I, and I, I couldn't really. I suddenly I was so ashamed. I said, "Oh God, I don't. You know, I'm not my aunt now. Realize I'm just a loafer." You know. I, I tried to explain it, but of course she doesn't understand. I said, "Well, I'm a teacher. I, I teach as much as I can." <laughs> I said, "Well, clearly not on Tuesdays." You know. 
And, and so there's that. And on another hand, my family was not the more stereotypical Asian American family. They didn't, they come from rice farmers. And here's the big difference with the um, Chinese Exclusion Act and, and all the, you know, various policy in America of excluding Asian Americans that they only wanted the excellent ones. They only allowed, America only allowed economically viable, thriving Asians to come and immigrate. And because of Operation Baby Lift and Operation Frequent Wind and Second Chance, now the refugee crisis brought forth a more diverse strata of Vietnamese Americans in America. And so you have rice farmers who one day were tilling the fields and next week they're in Hartford, they're in LA, Houston, Minnesota. I think for the first time, America now had a more diverse and more inclusive cast of uh, Asian American presence. And so my family never had those ambitions. They were, it was so foreign to them, even in Vietnam. None of my family, going back generations, ever taught in a school, ever wrote or read, ever was a, a lawyer or a scientist or a doctor. And so I was free in a way. You know, they went to work in the nail salon. They turned to me and they said, you can work at McDonald's if you want. That's a job. And so that was kind of the ceiling for me. There was no pressure. I was free to kind of be absolutely awestruck at the world. That was such a, an incredible gift. And I do owe it to them for giving me the space to fail because I, you know, I started off at business school and I dropped out of that because I thought that's what I was supposed to do to take care of them. But I was allowed to fail into the right place. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. 
Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. As you've mentioned, a key part of this book is your mother working at a nail salon. On page 79, you write... Because I am your son, what I know of work I know equally of loss, and what I know of both I know of your hands. Your hands are hideous, and I hate everything that made them that way. I hate how they are the wreck and reckoning of a dream. And I can't help but think of how you were feeling on March 16th of this year when eight people were shot to death at three massage parlors in Atlanta, six of whom were of Asian descent. And then your mother, who passed away in 2019 from cancer, who worked as a manicurist. From the outside, it felt like so much of your life was colliding at once. How did you sit with all of that? You know, you, you realize that you, you lose your mother to breast cancer. It's horrific. You watch her kind of waste away. You know, it's, now, now, sadly, it's a very common image that many families see. And, and then you realize, my God, what privilege it was for her to die at home, surrounded by the people she loved, all of us chanting Buddha sutras. It was inconceivable to me to, to imagine myself grieving if she was someone who was shot while working in a salon, like those, those six women. It helped, you know, in a way helped me see how lucky I was. It sounds absurd to say, but how lucky I was to be able to lose my mother on her own terms. And how so many of those children of those women didn't get that. They just got a, a text message or, or, or worse, watched the news. And, you know, of course, predictably, my, my inbox blew up with media requests, TV, radio, to kind of come on and, and, and sort of verbalize all this. And I had to say no to all of it. There was nothing I could say that I didn't say before. And I did not want to be a corporation's visual band-aid for a PR moment because it was all 
obvious it's been going on since 18 Chinese American, you know, men and boys were lynched in LA in the 19th century. And and from so on, you know, from every war in Asia and Southeast Asia um, since then. You know, can you imagine all of a sudden my books were on these lists, you know, my name was referenced in all these places and it was all these reading lists to kind of understand, quote unquote, know, empathize with Asian American life. So it's a horrific feeling, I think, to suddenly be relevant because six Asian American women are murdered. I don't wish that feeling on any artist. And so I couldn't participate in it. I was drawn into it, but I couldn't verbalize or participate in any real presence because it felt like I would be forsaking those very lives. Again, those women probably never read my books. I, I know those hours, you know, I have aunts who work in salons. You know, those women never would participate in the lives uh, that are participating in my books. You know, so I guess my question for myself and for the zeitgeist is, what does it mean to need a book in order to empathize? What is the role of empathy? Because often in literature, it's often an unquestioned utopic destination. We read to be empathetic. And empathy is very good. As a Buddhist, I'm a big supporter. But when you realize and when you interrogate it, it starts to become the final destination, often, of white readers only. Because when you reverse that question, you know, should we be empathetic to the shooter, to the Jeffrey Dahmers, etc., from a position of color, it becomes a very, very fraught, if not incredibly damaging endeavor. I think the way we curate cultural relics like books by Asian American authors is still quite fraught because while we read these books, These women are still dead. And in fact, reading about the lives of writers and the imagination of writers often who've created these things from the middle class actually draw more attention away from these women. And it feels like a very short-lived performance. And I feel very troubled by it, particularly as my agent would say, your book sales are going up, you know, off the roof. (laughs) Yay, (laughs) you know. Um, So... I've been really studying this moment from an emotional distance because it feels like something rich with anthropological knowledge I've yet to really pin down. It's a complicated issue because you want people to learn, to consider life they maybe have previously not considered, people with experiences different than their own, people who don't look like them. And yet, It's hard to pinpoint where the performative politics begin and end. And it goes to this question of, do we need to know about a life to value it? That's the the question that we as a species have to really reckon with. Because I think it was once a progressive position in amongst leftist milieus in the 19th century as in opposition to colonialism. In other words, you see Flaubert going to Egypt and saying, you know, Perhaps we shouldn't conquer these folks in this way because guess what? They too have art and music. When it should have been, we shouldn't have conquered and murdered this population because they too are people. And I think now that's hundreds of years ago. And so when I see these, this sort of recruitment of engaging in cultural relics in order to value life, 
I get very pessimistic all of a sudden. I say, you know, why can't these lives be inherently valuable without any knowledge, without any books or films? Like th those things are good, but when it's now pushed, this pressure to have a book literally save lives, it's unfair and it's disingenuous to the project of progressing our species. The danger is the ephemerality of this care and empathy are decreasing attention spans. Just as quickly as life is taken away, so too are people's interest in that life. And I hate to sound so cynical, I can hear it in my voice, but I do wonder if social media didn't exist, if it was gone, would people's interest in, say, racial justice, would it vanish? That's exactly the question I think we have to carry. And really, you know, it's a question to teach. Reuse this question. The question that you're raising here is such a vital tool for the present and the generations forward is that suspicion is so important. I mean, be living in this country, suspicion is so important. To say, okay, yes, but what else? Okay, yes, but why? Why am I being told this story, this narrative? Why does George Washington take a whole entire chapter in the textbook, what he ate, what tree he chopped down, what kind of teeth he had. But the Vietnam War was one page, and it was a page of Kennedy, and the next page it was Nixon, start to finish. You, you know, if you didn't know any better, you wouldn't even know what happened. One page. And that was my education. I, I'm optimistic, again, because I think right now, a kid who's reading that textbook in eighth or ninth or tenth grade can now turn on Instagram and have a different narrative. You know, I think there's a Wikipedia effect to this, where the narratives are now in our hands. And I think the question is always about power. You know, what happens when you reposition agency away from power? And I mean, your podcast is kind of like that, which is why I, I love it. You know, it's, it's just this grassroots desire to talk about something else in a better way. It, it seems so simple, but we've been hindered from that for so long because these textbooks are literally shoved down our throat. They, they, I mean, you're literally handed one and you have to put your name on it. And next year, someone else gets it. They cross out your name and they learn the same thing. And now we see the cage, right? You're in a school, you have so much freedom, you're in a free country, but in fact, the cage is right there in front of you. In the history books, the Vietnam War is presented as a paragraph maybe two or three paragraphs at most. And I wondered, for you, in thinking about your mother's legacy and how much of her is in this book, I go to this quote you have in here. Sometimes I imagine the monarchs fleeing not winter, but the napalm clouds of your childhood in Vietnam. And then, on page 31, you wrote, As a girl... You watched from a banana grove your schoolhouse collapse after an American napalm raid. At five, you never stepped into a classroom again. Our mother tongue, then, is no mother at all, but an orphan. Our Vietnamese, a time capsule, a mark of where your education ended, ashed, ma, to speak in our mother tongue is to speak only partially in Vietnamese. 
but entirely in war. Do you remember when you started to understand the long arc of her journey and where you fit inside of it? No, and I, I think I still don't. You can only know from the position of a son, which is why I wrote this book as a way of kind of getting this character to ask these questions that a mother, my mother, would never have to ask. And this is, I think, when I circle back to the word coward, I think ultimately I couldn't ask these questions of her. I would even argue that I am not ethically privy to her answers. Fiction creates kind of like this ethical plane where the conditions are set in which the, the most challenging questions could be asked, which is where I really agree with the late critic John Gardner when he writes in moral fiction. And he got a lot of flack for that because people thought he was having this very conservative approach to writing fiction that it should be based on morals and this sort of, you know, family values type of fiction, but it wasn't. What he wanted to ask is that the fiction is strongest when it launches a moral question, when it goes out to seeks to answer, to create an architecture in which the book can try to answer a moral question, even if it's a binary, even if it's a contradictory binary. But the attempt to do that makes fiction worthwhile. The questions that we couldn't ask in life because the cost would be too much. Fiction, and in a sense, narrative art, films included, gives us a vicarious opportunity to see these questions play out at no true cost to our own. And I think I treated my own life that way in, in the lives of my family. I was very protective of them. I wouldn't dare to ask them these questions. And so I'll ask these questions to the holograms. You've said multiple times in our talk that you're not courageous enough to ask those questions. But I wonder, is it a matter of courage or is it a matter of respect? That's a brilliant observation. I think on, when I say courage, I think I'm, I'm thinking perhaps too informed, too trapped in this capitalistic go get em writer approach that all this sort of Joan Didion, it's all there, right, for me. I love in, in her documentary when they ask, when you see this child on LSD, this toddler, what do you think? She's like, oh, it's gold mine, you know? And you know, she's a journalist, you know, but I think. So much of that idea of courage and lack thereof comes from that, comes from me being a product of a capitalistic system. And you're giving me this other angle, which I think is perhaps the most authentic one. I think it was ultimately about respect, because even if I had the courage, I couldn't have lived with it. I would have disrespected them by using their answers for art. And that was a line that I drew Many people asked me about that line in this novel, but I drew it when I was writing the poems. The poems create a mythos out of the context of history. They actually use history as a launching pad rather than a final place of rest for the poems, which is why I, I use the typology of the Greek myths to position Vietnamese bodies against. I don't know where I will end up between these two polar stances, respect or courage, but I hope that by the time I'm done with this life, I end up on the side of respect. Before we go, I want to sit with two memories. You grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, in this primarily black and brown community. And as a child, you would 
on Saturday nights, go to a friend's house and sleep over there. Consequently, on Sunday morning, you would attend these Baptist church services. You are not a Baptist by any means. And I know you became enraptured by these sermons at a young age. During one of these services, they start to tell the story of Noah's Ark. And the mythos of this story is not only imperative, but I think timely as we think about the future. You said, when the apocalypse comes, what will you put into the vessel for the future? And I'm thinking now about you moving forward after the pandemic, after your mother passed in November of 2019, on the heels of this book, of the pain of this year and last. What do you want to put in the vessel for the future? That's a great question. I think, you know, I I see Noah's Ark as a parable, and parables are meant to be models. And I think for me, seeing Noah's Ark as a model allows me to not only see what we put into the vessel in terms of material things, but in concepts and ideas. And so for me, I think the most prevalent idea that comes back to me throughout all this time since my mother passing is care. I want to learn how to practice care in a meaningful way because care is amplified by violence, by loss. It becomes more and more essential the more we lose and the more hurt we feel. And I actually think that care is tied to anger. It kind of becomes the aftermath of anger. And we're very angry now, rightfully so, for various reasons as a country, as a people. Perhaps we always were. But I I think when you're angry, you could do a lot of things. You could also do a lot of harm. And I try not to write out of anger. I try not to build my ark with rage. Although I'm sure I could. I could probably build many of them with rage. I'm interested in when you're done with anger. When your anger was curtailed and redirected or allowed to diffuse without manifestation. That's such an interesting thing to me. Not suppress it or to be ashamed of it, but to feel it and allow it to do nothing on you, to let it enter and leave like a poison it is. And then when you're on the floor, when you got to catch your breath and you say, I got to feed my cat, I have to pay the bills, I have to answer the emails, I have to teach my students, I have to put on a shirt. That moment is a moment of now what? And that moment demands care. How do I care for myself in order to get up off the floor? And I think at my best, I live and make art out of that position, which is an aftermath of anger and the precedence to joy. Joy might be very far from getting up off the floor, but you need to get off the floor to get there. And I mean, of course, it's not always about just chasing joy, but I want to learn how to do that better in all the ways that one could manifest that. I want to put that into the ark. Can we go to a joyous moment in remembering your mother? Yeah. In one of your earliest readings, you find yourself at the Mark Twain house doing a reading and... I wondered if you would tell that story. Yeah. It's the first reading my mother ever went to. And it was the only, it's a local one, my first local one in Hartford. We lived 
two blocks from that house, and we've never seen it. That's how Hartford could be absolutely segregated within inches. And so having grown up and lived for decades across the street, essentially, we finally arrived at this beautiful garden, this beautiful 19th century home. And I read, my mother, you know, watched and listened. And at the end, as people do, they clap. And I went back to her and I saw she was crying. I said, Ma, what's going on? What happened? What did I do wrong? And she said, I can't believe all these white people are clapping for my son. And I was taken aback by it. You know, I said, okay, you know, I mean, it's, there's more to success than just white people clapping. I, I kind of had my writer's hat on, you know, this young writer of color, kind of like, that's, come on, Ma, we're better than this, right? But then, you know, I remembered all the times that she had to lower her head, literally kneel to scrub somebody's foot. Most often, it was an older white woman doing pedicures. And it's her job. It's a wage. It's a fair trade. But it's not without its connotations, this supplication in order to receive a living. It kind of taught me that everybody has their own positions and their own definitions of triumph. And I'm, I'm not a writer worth my salt if I can't see that. Strangely enough, you know, two months before she passed, she had a, a good summer where the treatment was working. And she was able to travel with me to the last reading that she would see of me. She was very healthy, actually. Normal, quote-unquote, in all ways. And it was at an Asian American literary festival in Washington, D.C. And this time the audience was very different. They looked just like her. Many of them spoke Vietnamese. And after I read... It just feels, it feels like a scene from a movie, you know. I, I didn't plan anything, but she was sitting there in the front seat, as she always does. And after I read and people clapped, I just went down and I, I just grabbed her hand and brought her on stage. And then people were so happy, you know, because I think the Asian Americans, the various generations in that room knew what that meant. It, it, for the first time, it was not bewildering. And she didn't have to explain herself. They knew that she did have to lower her head so many times for her son to raise his head. And so when we stood side by side, I got off the stage and I just let her stand by herself. And she was crying yet again, just like the first time. And this time uncontrollably. And the crowd was just roaring, they standing ovation. And I think this time no one had to explain anything. And it, it felt like such a large moment of growth. In fact, it was only about six years that she could arrive at a place where she could be seen, but she did not have to justify her value as a person. Again, it took me writing and becoming, quote-unquote, a well-known writer for that to happen. Again, the women in Atlanta who were murdered didn't have that moment but their lives were just as viable and valuable as hers. And so in the literary context, this was possible. And that's the asterisk that still hurts, right? But I was grateful for it in that my mother could stand on her own terms at the end of her life. Last year, you said, the return to the left margin reminds us that we must, in poetry, break ourselves towards completion. 
And what an accurate way to embody human life is to acknowledge the fractures as necessary prerequisites towards closure and completion, which, of course, is no closure at all. That's it. And yet, I'd like to try to offer some version of closure for you and I, which is a song that I know means a great deal to you. This is I Shall Be Released by Nina Simone. That's it. That's it. Art is medicine. You know, that's... We'll never forget that. No matter what happens, you know, in our species, I don't think... That's one thing I can be sure of is that we'll never forget the medicinal power of art. And I have to say, I won't ever forget this talk with you. So, Ocean Vuong... Thank you for the words, and thank you for the time. Deep pleasure, Sam. Thank you for having me. So long. our show. Special thanks this week to Julie Kian, Molly Reed, Peter Biankowski, and Eric Lures. I'd also like to thank Ocean Vuong. His book, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, is now available on paperback. To learn more about Ocean and his work, visit www.talkeasypod.com. Just a reminder that we are a listener-supported program, which means The best thing you can do for us is to share this episode online with a friend, a family member, anyone that you think may enjoy what we do here. 
If you'd like to hear past conversations with other writers, I'd recommend our talks with George Saunders, Elizabeth Gilbert, Anne Lamott, Claudia Rankin, Morgan Parker, Jhumpa Lahiri, Fran Lebowitz, and Michael Lewis. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producers are Caitlin Dryden and Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Clarice Guevara. Our assistant editors are Eve Gershon and Joshua Siegel. Our interns are Callie Syringus, Kaylin Ung, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Orion Wong, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We're back next week with Sleater Kinney. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.